from the White Letter Production Studios in Los Angeles, California. I'm Ellie Unger-Sargon, and this is The Cut Podcast. Hello, everybody. So I guess we're going to go ahead and get started. Um, really want to thank everyone for coming out here tonight. I know it's of not difficult, it's often a difficult topic, not so easy for people, especially in this country, to sort of confront this issue. So again, I really appreciate everyone making out here tonight and want to thank Ellie for coming. He's been doing a big giant tour, 30 city tour around the country and now it's sort of nearing its completion. But he's made a really awesome film and really presents a lot of good information and commentary. And so I'm looking forward to seeing the film again and to here to participating in the discussion afterwards. So again, um, welcome everybody and big welcome to Ellie Ungersargon. Thanks everyone so much for coming out. I wanna thank Abe Haim, uh, not only for hosting me and organizing this particular screening, but it was Abe's idea to, is Abe's crazy idea, I should say, to take my film to 30 cities uh, over the course of a couple of months. Uh, so uh, I have a deep appreciation for the go big or go home philosophy. And uh, it's really been quite an amazing experience. So thank you for coming up with the idea also. Uh, I should thank the whole network and all the people who helped to sponsor my, my tour. Uh, so without further ado, thank you so much for coming. And uh, I'll talk to you after the film. Um, so I guess uh, what I wanted to do was start off by uh, having you, Abe, introduce yourself and talk a little bit about how you came to the subject of uh, genital integrity, circumcision, and also how you came up with this crazy idea of taking my film to 30 cities. Okay, so uh, my name is Abraham, and um, I'm actually from a Jewish family, though uh, unlike uh, Eliyahu, um, my family was not particularly religious. We were mostly um, fairly secular. My dad did an occasional... Passover Seder, occasional Hanukkah observance, but wasn't particularly religious. Um, I was brought up in an activist family. My, my parents are kind of hippies back in the day. They met at a Vietnam War protest, so I guess I sort of have activism in my blood. Um, and I first became aware of circumcision, um, I believe I was about eight years old or something, um, but sort of had a basic explanation and didn't really think that much about it, you know, I was basically told that, well, we thought there might be some health benefits and there doesn't seem to be any harm, so that's what we did, you know. Um, I didn't, it wasn't until within the last um, few years I really learned much about, um, you know, the part of the penis that's cut off, um, what functions it has. Um, before that point, I was already, to a certain extent, opposed to it just on philosophical grounds of the individual's right to self-determination autonomy. But like I said, it was just something that's so normal, quote unquote normal and ubiquitous in this culture that I hadn't really thought very critically about it at all. But um, then it was actually on, um, on Facebook, um, where I guess a lot of people <laughs> hear about things from there. My sister had shared some links about it and um, I started reading about it. It's kind of one of those things where the more you read about it, the more you learn about it, the more you realize how messed up of a, of a thing it is. And I've, I've just recently settled down here in Portland. Before that, I had been 
traveling around the world for for several years, uh, backpacking and um, doing you know, some temporary work and travel, couch surfing, and I had the idea that when I settled down here in Portland, I would join whatever genital integrity group there was here uh, in the city. But then I found that there really wasn't one. There was there was a group on Facebook called Whole Oregon Newborns, but there really wasn't any sort of out there in person kind of activism going on. And what I learned is that around the country, that's generally host in most of this kind of the country. So. The idea with the tour, um, before this, I had the idea of the tour, I'd already started organizing some small vigils and protests here in Oregon, here in Portland in particular. I think we, d we did one down in Salem at the state capitol building. But um, it was, um, originally it was, I had seen the, the film, and I ha had the idea that it would be nice to bring Ellie up here to Portland to do a screening. But then, um, after I'd had that idea, um, the people at the whole network, they had posted that they were interested in doing some project and that they were interested in doing fundraising and that they're going to be getting 501c3 status and interested in doing more, more events. So then I had this idea that well, we could actually do a, a big tour with this. And it's kind of crazy how it came together because um, like, uh, we basically just organized it through Facebook and through the internet. I didn't personally know any of the other local organizers in any of the other cities, but somehow we made it happen. And um, it's, um, you know, we've been, been a learning experience. We've sort of learned what's worked well, what hasn't worked well. And I mean, some sometimes it's just up to chance, but I think all in all, I guess it's gone rather well, con all things <laughs> considered, since this is sort of an unprecedented way to actually be even to organize it with um, very little organizational structure. But my hope is, is that it will inspire more more activism, more in-person activism, because I think this is an important issue, and it's too important for it to just be something that people only do online, you know, that we need to be out there in public talking with people about it and breaking the taboo. And from my perspective, um, you know, this film came out in 2007. Uh, it was my first feature-length documentary. Uh, I had started it, actually, in my last semester in art school at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. And then it blossomed into a feature. Um, and, uh, you know, it had a, a sort of life. Uh, it had a, We had a number of screenings uh, in different countries, too. Um, uh, hadn't gotten to many film festivals. And it was a very sort of, you know, it was a very, it, it was a very low-budget film, but it, was a, it had a small life. Uh, and we started selling DVDs. And I moved on to the next project. Um, I've been working for three years now on a documentary film about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict called A People Without a Land. And um, I was on my third production trip to Israel and Palestine. Uh, and I think I was in the West Bank when I got uh, this Facebook message from some guy I'd friended named Abe Haim. <laughs> um, and it was like, uh, you know, I want to take your film to 30 cities. Uh, and I said... Okay, <laughs> um, sounds great. Uh, tell me more. And you know, things just sort of developed from there. The money came together really quickly, yeah. and um, and it really has been this amazing sort of social media experiment. I think. Yeah, that's that's one thing I was very impressed with was the response from the community from the, with the whole network. Mm -hmm. um, especially, would like to thank people like um, Lauren Jenks and Heather Long. Um, they um, and Jeff Brown also with the whole network. And of course, everyone who con who contributed to to making this event happen, um, people we 
actually ended up raising uh, more than $3,000 in an online fundraiser. And we actually did it rather quickly, too. So I think um, that's really great that, that people, you know, chipped in and, you know, was able to make the event happen. And, the I mean, enthusiasm and hospitality that I've encountered, I mean, we're coming to the end now, but it's been remarkable and amazing and uh, humbling. So I should say thank you to everyone for that. Um, with that, I'd like to open it up to question and answer. Give me a second to turn on the wireless system, and uh, we'll pass around the mic and uh, get your questions and hopefully address some of them. I had the unfortunate circumstance of attending a circumcision in Turkey of a 13, almost 14-year-old boy, mm -hmm. which made things far worse. Would you ever have an opportunity to do all that documentary research in, in the Muslim tradition? Because the, the Meshuggah in Islam about circumcision, I think, is even worse than the Jewish Meshuggah. Right. Well, I, I don't know about making a judgment as to whether infant circumcision is worse or childhood circumcision is worse or adult circumcision is worse. I think it's very hard to compare. Um, I, I mean, I just think it's, it's hard to quantify pleasure and pain as a general principle. And... There are elements of doing it at infancy that are worse or more painful. We talked about it in the film a little bit, that there's the synechia, the balanoproputial membrane that needs to be torn as the first step. And, of course, the baby has absolutely no sort of way of preparing itself for what's happening. A child, at least, you know, the parent can talk to him and sort of... So I, I think it's difficult to, com to, to compare, but more to your point of whether I would sort of go into the... Uh, Islamic side of things, my feeling, I feel very strongly that um, for reasons of cultural sensitivity, I'm not willing to do that. Uh, I also don't talk about um, African circumcision. Uh, I don't talk about Australian circumcision. I'm comfortable, especially given the fact that I think this is an important moral issue. So I'm really critical of the practice, but I'm, I'm only comfortable being critical of this practice in my own communities. And my communities are, you know, the Jewish community and the American community. Um, I, I really, it rubs me the wrong way when I see these reports of, you know, American doctors going to Africa and telling them that they shouldn't be cutting their girls, but they should be cutting their boys. And, you know, I just feel like it's sort of the worst kind of imperialism that there is. I mean, I do, uh, at, at, you know, at the bottom, this is a human rights issue. And so at that level, I do think that all human beings should have uh, protection from these sorts of practices. But my preference is to partner with or be supportive of uh, members of those communities that are speaking out against it rather than, you know, sitting from my, uh, you know, Jewish American perch and criticizing what other cultures are doing. Can I also ask a humorous question? Sure. Um, in the film and tonight, you're wearing a backwards hat, and and do you always wear a backwards hat? Well, this isn't backwards. It's just a beret. Um, and uh, the hat that you saw me wearing in the film, there was a backwards hat in the film. That was a Harley Davidson hat that I am particularly fond of. Um, and there's a part in the film also where I'm wearing a kippah, a very large skull cap. Um, I don't always wear hats, but I have a sort of fondness for them. Hi, 
I was wondering what your thoughts are of the attempt to ban circumcision in the city of San Francisco and uh, how that played out. Sure. Well, first of all, just a, a small semantic correction, but it's one that's, that I think is kind of important. Uh, there wasn't an attempt to ban circumcision in San Francisco. There was an attempt to uh, make illegal the circumcision of minors in the city of San Francisco. That's an important distinction that uh, a lot of people fail to understand. The only time in history that I'm aware of where circumcision was actually properly banned was in the Soviet Union. Um, there was a sort of anti-religious uh, quality to that, so that adult Jews were or Muslims were also not allowed in the Soviet Union to circumcise themselves. But that wasn't what's, what was going on in San Francisco. It was really about making it illegal to circumcise a, a non-consenting minor, um, or you know, a minor by definition is not consenting. Um, what do I think about what happened there? Uh, I think it's great. Um, I think they did more this summer than has been done probably in years and years to bring this issue to the attention of the public. Um, all of a sudden, people in, in the media were talking about it, in the mainstream media were talking about it for a solid two months. I think the hardest thing when it comes to this subject is actually getting people to talk about it. I think once you get people talking, or and I've you know been on this tour now for about two months, and I can tell you from experience, once people have, are in the room and they watch the film and they're having a conversation, things tend to move uh, pretty rapidly. Um, you know, non-Jews typically say to me something like, well, why do we do this? We're chumps. And the Jews start to really engage also, and you can start to see the wheels turning. But the hardest thing is getting them into these chairs. It's getting people to talk. So the biggest success in my mind of what they did in San Francisco was they got everyone talking about circumcision for two months. And I also think, and Abe has pointed this out, um, this is his analysis, I should attribute it to him, but um, it, it's true, and I think, I think it's absolutely true, that there was a shift that occurred in 1999 with the American Academy of Pediatrics statement, policy statement about circumcision, where they said that it's, they don't recommend it routinely because the the potential benefits aren't enough to recommend it routinely, but th that it should be left up to the parents. That was a shift away from it being an automatic practice to being one that parents had to decide about, and that's an important shift. What the guys in San Francisco, the Bay Area activists and Lloyd Schofield and all those guys were doing was they were shifting that discourse even further to a point of saying, well, it's not really a parental decision. This is a decision that every individual has the right to make for themselves. So that was another thing they did. They forced people to think about it that way, um, and in so doing, moved the discourse forward a little bit. They also tangled with what I consider to be um, the best organized minority in the history of democracy, American Jews, and in so doing, um, sort of got their butts handed to them um, politically. Um, and it must be said that that happened also, right? I mean, they didn't just have, I mean, the ADL and, and the other Jewish and Muslim organizations, but mostly Jewish organizations, they didn't just get the ballot removed, the ballot initiative removed. They also uh, made it illegal statewide to put it on any ballot, and they're now pushing legislation to make that federal. They're going to try and go nationwide with, with that legislation. So 
um, it felt like, you know, one step forward, two steps back. But I think the truth of the matter is that because we're already in this space of um, it's a parental decision, um, the attention that was shone on this issue, um, and this is, I can back this up with the continuing declining vector of circumcision nationwide in the United States over time, I think they actually had a really positive overall impact on the issue. Yeah, it, what I thought was a little ironic was the ACLU was actually involved mm. on their side. But So do you think it would have been better in hindsight to have included a religious exemption or? No. So I would, it was. I would, I would say not, and if I could give some reasons um, why not, I think that basically the important principle is, for me, is one of body ownership and individual choice. And when we talk about freedom of religion, we really have to think whose religion, you know, because just because a child is born to a Jewish family or Muslim family or, you know, the family of some sort of um, Christian denomination, which which practice the circumcision, most, most don't, at least according to their official doctrine, but um, whatever the religion might be, we don't know what religion the child, if any, the child's going to grow up and want to practice. So um, it really comes down to, just like with female genital cutting, it really comes down to who's the owner of the bo this body, and what does he or what does she want for his or her own body? What sort of modifications uh, might they want or not want to make? And so I think that that was a big error on the part of the ACLU. And I, I have a lot of respect for the ACLU and a lot of the work that they've done. I think they've done a lot of good work to defend civil liberties in this country, and I'm a strong civil libertarian, but I think that was definitely a big mistake that they made. I don't know to what extent it was a political calculation or to what extent it simply just reflected this very internalized normalization of circumcision within our culture. And I think even within the global culture, um, there's everyone to a certain extent has been indoctrinated with this belief that this is a parental choice or that this is some sort of acceptable cultural practice, you know, but I think that I would challenge anyone in the ACLU to really think critically about this issue because I think once, once you think critically about it, then it's really not defensible from a civil libertarian perspective to, you know, to be defending it. Right, and I would add that uh, had there been a religious exemption, it really would have undermined the human rights argument. Um, it, you would, you would, in effect, be saying that um, Jewish and Muslim babies uh, or children don't have the same human rights as everyone else, and that, to me, would undermine the entire. Because we all know that Jews and Muslims are also humans, <laughs> so it would undermine the whole human rights argument, and it would make the position, the ethical position upon which this whole thing rests, very shaky. Um, so whatever strategic value it might have had, I think ultimately, for ethical reasons, that would have been a big, big mistake. We just had an interesting case here in Multnomah County, our local county in which Portland is uh, mm -hmm. located, of having a mother of West African origin who, be, who had become an extraordinarily ardent fundamentalist Christian, and she, reading her Bible at some point, decided that she needed to circumcise her son and undertook to do so. This is only three months ago, with a pocket uh, paring knife. And of course, and uh, I should tell you, I work in the child abuse field and uh, am a sworn officer of the court and so forth. 
um, the court chose not to prosecute her because of her Christianity, and I went through the ceiling because, of course, if if she had been of of, of any religion and had cut off an ear of her child, but said my religion said it, she would absolutely the child would have been removed immediately. She would have been prosecuted. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I. I think I'm supposed to pose a question rather than make a comment. No, the comment's fine. Uh, I, it's I actually... A, it, it's such a... I actually wound up writing the, pres- writing the presiding judge of our circuit court, you know, <laughs> saying you really need judicial review. On right. This. But, I mean, it's a remarkable state of affairs if you think it's about remarkable. it. Um, and, and this is sort of... This example brings to light a very interesting aspect of this that doesn't often get discussed, which is namely... Um, we have this, what amounts to an assault on an infant's body, and it's legal. It's legal if it's circumcision. There is, I, I'm not aware of any other kind of assault on an infant's body or on a child's body that's legal for any reason. But because it's circumcision, not only is it legal, but you don't need any medical training in order to do it, right? If you're a mohel... There's no regulation of mohels. There's no certification system whereby, I mean, they have their own kind of internal training, but I mean, it's it's a bit of a roll of the dice and, you know, word of mouth kind of thing. There's no, the government certainly doesn't regulate it and the medical authorities don't regulate it. So it's a remarkable, remarkable situation that we find ourselves in. And of course, it was made illegal to do this to girls. Well, the additionally amazing thing about this case was that she didn't ask a, a mole to do it or, or someone Right. What I'm saying is that legally, yeah. there would be no distinction because a mohel isn't like, I mean, there's nothing special about a mohel from the point of view of the law. It's just someone who does circumcision. So from a legal perspective, the difference between a mohel doing it or just some random person deciding that they're going to do home circumcisions, there's no difference. Hello, I'm Roberta and I am a doula, some labor coach. Um, been doing a lot of home birth for about seven years um, in hospitals and things and trying to educate parents on the situation. I'm a mother of two old, older children, two older sons. I have four children total. Um, but just the feeling, just watching that, and every mother, she's, of course, upset. She leaves the room, you know, and trying to, you know, uh, stand by her faith and her family and this film and knowing what's right, but also the mothering instinct. And so in my position, it's my biggest regret that I've done that to my children. Um, So I try to help families and try not to be um, too, I guess, guided with that because I think that the risks of death to children, they're not really publicizing that. And that last year, I think there were three children, infants, that died because of circumcision. They went home and, you know, the baby was bleeding throughout the night and they're not really telling pa- you know, parents about this. And so they're feeling really horrible because they just lost their son when they really think they're doing the best thing for their baby is to circumcise the child. Yeah. Um, so on my end of what I'm doing, I just, you know, I'm really tired, I worked all day, but I think this is really... I was <laughs> gonna ask you that, I was like, you had a kid. I did, yeah, I work at Planned Parenthood, so it's like, so all of these things are tying together and it is about some a personal you know, it's a personal issue, so people should be able to, you know, ask of this for themselves. And just to, I went so far as to show my children and my daughters, you know, and my youngest daughter's four. But I'm telling her, this is what 
this is what is normal. This is what people want us to believe is normal. And so I think in some cases, some people would say, oh, well, that's child abuse, is showing your children, you know, showing your children this video. You know, it's like really, you know, what w to educate and empower people or, or, or to not. And I think your film is amazing. I think it's great. Oh, thank you. And uh, I found a lot of stuff on Facebook. And, you know, it's really uh, an inspirational tool to use is because I have a lot of other doula friends that put this up. You know, well, somebody put it up and people are like, oh, yeah, it sounds so good. Well, I'm more of a doer than a sayer, you know. So I just was like, I'm tired, but I'm going. You know, said hi to my kids for an hour and a half, ate dinner with them, and I said I'm out. Didn't even change my clothes. <laughs> so uh, you know, it was just like something that's really important, and just to gain personal knowledge. That knowledge is power, and the more that I can share with people and let them know what organizations, what you have going on now here in Portland, and really get the birth activists out there to do this and being aware of what's going on and educating. I think it's. It's really good. It was definitely worth coming to see, and I'm very, very. Thank proud you of so much piece. for coming. Yeah. I really, really appreciate that. Uh, just a, a point of interest. Um, I think many more than three babies died last year of circumcision-related complications. We heard about three. Um, it's very hard to know exactly how many babies die every year, but I do not trust the official numbers. Um, and. I know for a fact that more than three babies died of circumcision-related complications last year. It's it's a it's it's an issue that that doesn't get spoken about enough, and part of the reason is it's hard to get reliable data on it, and no one wants to admit it when it happens that that's why it happened. Um, but I think it's safe to say that far more than three. Far more, and they're blaming it on SIDS, you know, or different things. And really, when they should really look at these things, and yeah. That's just what was out and what I've yep. heard from yep. through the in this area. In this area in Multnomah. Oh. Multnomah County uh. is what the midwives were telling me. So there's gotta be more than that. I'm, I'm yeah. 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 Uh, mortality rates—that's a big thing to like check on and really see. Yeah. Even the 100 and so figure for nationwide is probably an underestimate, but Absolutely. it's just difficult to know because typically they'll list the cause of death as hemorrhaging or maybe some type of uh, meningitis infection or whatever. But the infection wouldn't have happened without that wound being created there. The bleeding to death wouldn't happen without that wound being made. Yeah. And and that's one of the things actually that um, <laughs> you know I get a lot. Um, from journalists or other folks, um, you know, why you, like, why this issue? There's so many other things going on in the world. A, a teacher of mine once said, the world is on fire, Ellie, and you're talking about circumcision. <laughs> and, um, well, there are actually people who die from this every year. Um, and, of course, we're talking about sex. And that's also important to note. I spent a good deal of time in the film talking about the sexual effects because I believe that uh, ultimately that's the the biggest ethical violation is the effect that, that this practice has on male sexual experience. I had one more question. Did you talk about uh, or did you do any um, research on what like the endorphins and everything that is released into a baby when they're going through that much pain and they actually go through shock. That's shock that's happening to them afterwards. And, you know, I know you, you know, you have a very focused, you know, area about that. But I, so, you know, as the last four years, I've been looking into it yeah. and seeing different clips and films of a child actually going into shock. And they're saying, you know, some babies have had heart attacks and, you know, things of that nature. And then also thinking about, um, yeah, what that actually does to a human being, you know, as his animals, and and what 
that sticks with you for life. You know, people yep. don't realize what that does. And the yeah. human condition, I think that, you know, you first learn your first week of life is such excruciating, close-to-death yeah. pain. Absolutely. I mean, I felt in the film it was much more powerful to show the baby um, the way I did than to have a talking head sort of say, you know, blood cortisol levels X, heart rate Y, you know, pain response after first inoculation Z. Um, uh, so that that just from that was just an artistic choice. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that uh, our tools aren't quite where I'd like them to be in terms of describing exactly what the effects of this are on a person from a psychological, even from a biological perspective uh, or neurological perspective. We're starting to look at certain things. Uh, in Boulder, there was a woman in the audience who's a sort of somatic uh, psychotherapist and she was talking about uh, certain things that we now know about cells retaining certain kinds of memories. And um, I think we're, we're, those fields are in their infancy right now. And, and in general, our understanding of human psychology and the human mind is, is kind of poor. Um, but yeah, of course, um, the, that, I, I mean, even though we don't have hard data, and, and so if I were talking to someone who disagrees with me about this, I sort of would steer clear of those issues because I would have I don't have as firm ground to stand on as on some of the other issues I agree I think they're important to talk about I did a podcast um, earlier uh, this month with uh, a man by the name of Ron Goldman uh, who is um, he's a PhD in psychology and we talked for about 45 minutes about the psychological effects not just on the infant I think when you're Dealing with the psychological effects of circumcision, there are more people than just the infant to talk about. You have to talk about the parents. You have to talk about the infant. You have to talk about the, the, the man as he grows up and what the impact might be there. And then, of course, um, you have to talk about the impact on the practitioners. Um, it has a dehumanizing effect on the practitioners, and that needs to be discussed as well. Uh, so there's a statement in the film that only Israel and the U.S. routinely practice circumcision or something like that? Right. That the United States and Israel are, or aside from Israel, that the United <laughs> States is the last country in the world that practices routine infant circumcision. There are plenty of places that oh. do it to children or as sort of rites of passage in adolescence. Um, and I know that there are parts of the Muslim world in which it's starting to become more commonplace to have it done in hospitals. But as far as I know, that hasn't reached the over 50 percent yet. I see. Yeah. Um, it's often done. It's often. I mean, in the Muslim world, I mean, this is just a fact. Uh, most Muslims, as far as I know, do it in childhood, not in infancy. I know that that's changing where in, in sort of the more urban centers and in places where Western influence is more profound. They're starting to do it earlier and in hospitals. But um, for the most part in the Muslim world, it is, it's something done during childhood. Um, 13 is a sort of popular age. Uh, I've heard also between 5 and 7. It's variable. But routine infant circumcision, another, and what oh, that means is infancy, yeah. more than 50% of the population done at infancy. That's pretty much Israel and the United States. Yeah. Thank you. Take the mic, please. Oh. <laughs> well, you've done us a great service. You're an amazing filmmaker, and thank you so much. Oh, have you have you read Christopher Hitchens' book, um, 
God is not great, how religion poisons everything. Sure have. Yeah. Sure have. His writings against uh, circumcision there are. Oh uh, yeah, he's 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 spoken with a very clear voice against yeah. male genital cutting, and I I appreciate that about him. I don't um, entirely agree with his take on religion. I think he has some really important criticisms of religion that I accept, and I think anyone who cares about religious traditions need to take seriously. Um, but uh, I think he and a lot of the other new atheists have a tendency to. Um, they think that you can vacuum this one concept out of culture and sort of be safe from the tentacles of religion. And I think that that's very misguided. I think you can't vacuum the God concept out and be safe from religion. I think it's much more profound than that. I think it has a much more profound influence on many, many aspects of the way we view the world, the way we approach reality, the way we think about things. And so I think they're in, engaged in a bit of self-delusion when they sort of feel that if they can, you know, insulate themselves from the, the nasty elements of religion and the God concept that they can just, you know, escape from its clutches. It's not that simple. And more to the point, um, you know, we're human beings. That's why we do nasty things, not because we're religious. Um, and so taking religion out of the picture, even if you could do it, wouldn't change that. We're human beings. We have a sort of dualistic nature. We have an enormous potential for damage and an enormous potential for creativity. Um, and that's true whether you're religious or not. I just think that religion violently exacerbates the tendency to do bad things. It can. It absolutely uh, for me, can. It does. Not that it can. It does. But I'm sure you would accept that there are people in the world who are religious for whom that's not true. There are people. I'll give you an example. Um, Martin Luther King, um, I think, is a great example of a religious figure who, um, in his being religious, actually did things to help the world. And it wouldn't have been the same if he weren't religious. Um, I think there are many other examples that, that I can think of in the abolitionist movement. Um, many of the people who took the lead in the abolitionist movement were religious figures. So, and I totally know where you're coming from because I've had some damaging experiences with religious tradition myself, but I think you can, you can accept that, that that's not everyone's experience and that it's not, and, and yes, um, there are elements of religious traditions that will exacerbate the worst parts of our nature, but I think that the reverse is also true and that it doesn't affect everyone the same way. I was just wondering if you had any advice for people who want to be an intactivist or are an intactivist and um, what strategies and tactics do you think will work or have worked from what you've seen? Learn everything you can really educate yourself well. This is a field that's multidisciplinary. You need to really immerse yourself in it. There's a lot to learn. Do the learning. Do the studying on the religious and cultural traditions as well. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, familiarize yourself with everything. Mm. I had the pleasure of meeting a lawyer by the name of David Llewellyn, who's very active in this field. He's a genital injury lawyer. His whole practice is around genital injury cases. And I was super impressed with his knowledge of the Jewish tradition. 
Um, I don't say that often. But he understood, I mean, down to the level of understanding the difference between how some people pronounce it brismila and some people pronounce it britmila. I mean, really down to the fine details. And that's what you need to do, especially if you're going to be encountering Jews on this. And I would say the same thing about Muslim tradition and African circumcision. Whoever you think you're going to be encountering, learn as much as you can about their tradition. Also, the interdisciplinary approach to studying this subject will give you um, the ability to react heuristically to what any given situation. Not everyone responds to the same arguments about this. Um, some people will be more compelled by a moral argument. Some people will be more compelled by um, sort of emotional treatments of the issue. Some people are going to be more compelled by the science, and some people are going to be more compelled by the pain. Um, so it, you really owe it to yourself to read up all the latest literature and everything you can on all of the different facets of the subject. And then my final piece of advice is organize. Um, the thing about intactivism that I think is most lacking is, um, is organization. You know, we saw it this summer in what happened with Foreskin Man and um, the ballot initiative and fighting with American Jews. There's just no discipline among the ranks. I think you need some sort of uh, leadership structure that's more centralized than it is right now. And I think you need to really have discipline. And if you can figure out a, a way to emulate the organization styles of the American Jewish community, you'd be, you'll be well on your way. What I would recommend um, is the first thing is maybe just to go out there and do something. Um, Sometimes that's the, that's the hardest first step. Um, I mean, if there's an existing group, existing activist on this issue in your community, then you, know, you can try to get in touch with them. But if not, what you might try doing is just making a sign or making a banner, go out there, print a few leaflets or whatever to hand out, go out there, even if you're just by yourself, you know, that will, if nothing else, it will spark conversations. And I, because th I think that, the, like I think with this issue, it's one of those issues where simply starting a conversation does a huge, huge thing. And, you know, so if you're out there for a couple hours, you don't know, but there's a good chance there might be one or two babies that, that don't get cut as a result of you being out there. That's one thing that particularly appeals to me about this uh, particular type of activism is that it's so easy for each of us to, sim to make results simply by breaking that taboo. I think that's one of the things that's really allowed it to persist in this culture is that people simply don't talk about it, you know, because it touches on sex and religion and politics and other sorts of things that people aren't so comfortable talking about. And, of course, it's not comfortable for men who have been circumcised to confront it. It's not comfortable for, for parents who have had their kids circumcised to discuss it. It's not comfortable for, you know, for women whose partners are circumcised to discuss it. But I think we need to push past that and, you know, basically just shine the light of day on it because once that happens that's what's going to make it it have to end that's our show if you have any questions comments or suggestions please email them to us at cutdocumentary at gmail.com and if you like what you've heard today please support us by buying our film at www.cutthefilm.com <laughs>